Well, it's now time for our main Bible reading, which is 1 Kings chapters 20 and 21. Uh, worth following it because we're going to be looking at this together. There are some Bibles at the back if you don't have one. I'm reading from the ESV. And we're still with King Ahab of Israel. So things have slowed down and we pick it up at 1 Kings 20, verse 1. It says this. Then Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army together. 32 kings were with him and horses and chariots. And he went up and closed in on Samaria and fought against it. And he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine, your best wives and children also are mine. And the king of Israel answered, As you say, my lord, O king, I am yours, and all that I have. The messengers came again and said, Thus says Ben-Hadad, I sent to you, saying, Deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. Nevertheless, I will send my servants to tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants, and lay hands on whatever pleases you, and take it away. Then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Mark now and see how this man is seeking trouble. For he sent to me for my wives and my children, and for my silver and my gold, and I did not refuse him. And all the elders and all the people said to him, Do not listen or consent. So he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king, all that you first demanded of your servant, I will do, but this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. Ben Hadad sent to him and said, The gods do so to me, and more also. If the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls of, uh, for all the people who follow me. And the king of Israel answered, Tell him, Let not him who straps on his armour boast himself like he who takes it off. When Ben-Hadad heard this message, as he was drinking with the kings in the booze, he said to his men, Take your positions. And they took their positions against the city. And behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And Ahab said, By whom? He said, Thus says the Lord, by the servants of the governors of the districts. Then he said, Who shall begin the battle? He answered, You. Then he mustered the servants of the governors in the districts, and they were 232. And after them he mustered all the people of Israel, 7,000. And they went out at noon. While Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the booze, he and the 32 kings who helped him, the servants of the governors of the districts went out first, and Ben-Hadad sent out scouts, and they reported to him. Men are coming out from Samaria. He said, If they have come out for peace, take them alive. Or if they have come out for war, take them alive. So these went out of the city, the servants of the governors of the districts and the army that followed them. And each struck down his man. The Syrians fled, and Israel pursued them. 
that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, escaped on a horse with horsemen. And the king of Israel went out and struck the horses and chariots and struck the Syrians with a great blow. Then the prophet came near to the king of Israel and said to him, Come, strengthen yourself and consider well what you have to do, for in the spring the king of Syria will come up against you. And the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are gods of the hills, and so they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And do this, remove the kings each from his post, and put commanders in their places, and muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain, and surely we will be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. In the spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the people of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went against them. The people of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats. But the Syrians filled the country. And a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, Because the Syrians have said, The Lord is the God of the hills, but he's not a God of the valleys. Therefore I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And they encamped opposite one another seven days. Then on the seventh day the battle was joined, and the people of Israel struck down of the Syrians a hundred thousand foot soldiers in one day. And the rest fled into the city of Aphek, and the wall fell upon twenty-seven thousand men who were left. Then Hadad also fled and entered in a chamber in the city, and his servants said to him, Behold now, we have heard that the king of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Let us put sackcloth round our waists and ropes on our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. So they tried, tied sackcloth round their waists and put ropes on their heads and went to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben-Hadad says, Please let me live. And he said, Does he still live? He is my brother. Now the men were watching for a sign and they quickly took it from him and said, Yes, your brother Ben-Hadad. Then he said, Go and bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came out to him, and he caused him to come up into the chariot. And Ben-Hadad said to him, The cities that my father took from your father I will restore, and you may establish bazaars for yourself in Damascus, as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, I will let you go on these terms. So he made a covenant with him, and let him go. And a certain man of the sons of the prophet said to his fellow at the command of the Lord, Strike me, please. But the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, Because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you have gone from me, a lion shall strike you down. And as soon as he had departed from him, a lion met him and struck him down. Then he found another man and said, Strike me, please. And the man struck him, uh, struck him and wounded him. So the prophet departed and waited for the king by the way, disguising himself with a bandage over his eyes. And as the king passed, he cried to the king and said, Your servant went out into the midst of the battle, and behold, a soldier turned and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man, if by any means he is missing. Your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent silver. And as your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. The king of Israel said to him, So shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. Then he hurried to take the bandage away from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. And he said to him, Thus says the Lord, Because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life, and your people for his people. 
And the king of Israel went to his house, vexed and sullen, and came to Samaria. Now, Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel, beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house, vexed and sullen, because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would not and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me a vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him, saying, you've cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it is written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they said, sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money. For Naboth is not alive but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up, and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Bashan, the son of Ahijah, for the anger of which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel the Lord said, also said, The dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. Anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. There is none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel his wife incited. He acted very abominably. 
in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh, and fasted and lay in sackcloth, and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon this house. Well, keep that passage open. We're going to have a look at that together. As we start to say there's an outline of where we're going in the service sheet, uh, looks like that. So do make use of that if that helps you to make notes. Um, and then at the end of the talk, there'd be an opportunity to ask any questions or comments that you might have. I'll mention that now so you can be thinking ahead. But before we go any further, let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who is sovereign, good and truthful. And pray please that we as your people would therefore vindicate who you are in the way that we approach your word. We would listen to it as words of truth, that we would trust it because they are good words spoken by our benevolent creator. And also that we would obey them because you are sovereign over us, your people. Please help us in this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I wanted to talk to you this morning about encouragement and boldness and conviction in evangelism. Not least because we have one of our main altogether evangelistic events next Sunday, Carols by Candlelight at Victoria Hall, 6pm. And it's an event not run uh, uh, for us as such, it's actually run for our guests, that they might have an enjoyable Carols by Candlelight, to sing some carols, to enjoy one another and to hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. But on first glance of today's reading, I mean, where does that leave us? I mean, in chapter 20, the point seems to be, make sure you finish off your enemies. If you're at war with them, complete the job and finish them. Well, I mean, that kind of thing is not going to help fill Victoria Hall. And then you have chapter 21. And there, uh, the idea is, don't steal your neighbour's vineyard. Now, I actually understand that one of the effects of global warming is that the climate in the UK is improving for growing grapes. And that there's an increase in planting vineyards and producing wine. But I mean, it's still quite a long way off from our experience. But maybe we could modernise it and say, don't nick your neighbour's garden or allotments. You know, no getting up in the middle of the night and rearranging the neighbour's fence just to get that little bit more extra vegetable garden. But if we're going to pay attention to the text, well, the situation there is, don't kill your neighbour in order to have their garden or allotment. I don't think any of us are quite there yet. Well, maybe this is a reason not to read passages like this and stick to the New Testament 
um, texts such as the Great Commission in passages like Luke 28. Now, if you've been following our series in 1 Kings, I hope you're getting a handle on how the whole book fits together. The big turning point is back in chapter 11, where we learn that the kingdom is to be divided. It's going to be split into two, the northern kingdom, which from that point onwards will be called Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah. (coughs) Now we also already know that the northern kingdom is doomed. Because of its first king, Jeroboam, because he was so bad, the hammer of God's judgment will certainly fall on this kingdom. But the thing is, is it's falling very slowly. There are going to be 19 more kings after Jeroboam before we get to the point where Israel falls in 2 Kings chapter 17. And the question is, why is it falling so slowly? What is causing the hammer of divine judgment to fall so slow? Why not just be done with it? Well, it's a question that we'll come back to in a bit. We're now at the seventh king of Israel, Ahab. First introduced in chapter 16, the narrative has slowed down with this king and we're looking at life under his reign. Now in chapter 21, Ahab is in battle with Syria and their king, Ben-Hadad. Ahab experiences victory over them, but the problem is really at the end when Ahab makes an alliance with them rather than finishing them off. Now if you're familiar with Israel's history and God's relationship with Israel, then this will ring some alarm bells. And we've seen this kind of thing before. When God gave Israel the land of Canaan, he told them to destroy all of its inhabitants. They're not to share that land with the neighbouring peoples, lest they be enticed to worship their gods. Now, Ahab is massively compromised already. He's built a temple for Baal, he's worshipped him. In many ways, the reason for this alliance is that it's strategic for the future of this king as he sees it. But nevertheless, he's called out. Ahab has released the king whom God had determined should die. And breaking God's covenant brings God's curse. And therefore we have God's curse on him and his family. 1 Kings 20, verse 42. 20, 42. And he said to him, Thus says the Lord, Because you've let go out of your hand the man whom I had devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life, and your people for his people. So the significance here is not simply finishing off your enemies. These were particular enemies. This is a particular phase of redemptive history. These were God's enemies whom God had handed over to be destroyed. And yet the thing that Ahab does 
if he does not destroy them. And therefore he and the nation will experience God's curse. Now in chapter 21, there is the account of Naboth's vineyard. Ahab's not happy, and he wants this vineyard, but he can't get it. And so his wife arranges for Naboth to be murdered so that he can take the vineyard. Now, the key to understanding all this is to observe what is said in chapter 21, verse 3. When asked by Ahab for his vineyard, 21, verse 3, Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Here we learn that the reason that he won't sell it is because it is his inheritance. Now again, if we're familiar with Israel's history, this is a big category. God had redeemed his people from Egypt in order to give them a land where he would dwell with them and they would be his people and he would be their God, the land of Canaan. And that land was portioned out to the people as their inheritance. And it was to be passed on and enjoyed by future families and tribes. Now the thing about the inheritance is, is it, it was a land that God had given them. Now at some point we have to ask the question, who is God that he gives the land? Well, in short, he is its creator and therefore its owner. And therefore he is free to give it to whom he pleases. And here, he gave it to Israel. But they were never given full rights but to be vicegerents of the land. That is, we're thinking more in terms of stewardship rather than outright possession. It belonged to them, but it was to be used as God would have them use it. And in particular, it was to be kept. They were not free to be taken it was not free to be taken by others or even sold to others. It was theirs to keep and maintain and pass on to future generations. Naboth then is obligated to refuse Ahab's offer. And in making it, Ahab has disregarded his flight law. Do you think it's significant that Ahab wants the land for a vegetable garden? Because it's Naboth's vineyard, but he wants it for a vegetable garden. Well, at this point, just keep a finger in 1 Kings and flick back with me to Deuteronomy 11, verse 10. Or if you'd rather just listen, I'm going to read from verse 8 of Deuteronomy 11. And see if you can think about why it might be significant. It says this, You shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I command you today, that you may be strong and go in and take possession of the land that you are going over to possess, and that you may live long in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give to them and to their offspring, a land flowing with milk and honey. For the land that you are entering to take possession of is not like the land of Egypt, from which you have come, 
where you sowed your seed and irrigated it, like a garden of vegetables. But the land that you're going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water by the rain from heaven, a land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it, from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. Here, a contrast has been made, has been offered between Egypt and the Promised Land. Egypt is described as a vegetable garden requiring human care. The Promised Land is described as a land which the Lord their God cares for. And then, when you add the idea that Israel sometimes portrayed in the Old Testament as a vine under God's special care, I mean, could it be that Ahab's desire to replace a vineyard with a vegetable garden is meant to be seen as symbolic of a deeper desire? You know, is this a king who wants to make Israel like Egypt? Well, when, when we put this uh, chapter together, what we have is another covenant violation and therefore another covenant curse. It's not simply a case of a murder and a theft. This is a case of a violation of God's covenant with his people, and therefore it places the king's family and the nation under God's curse. I mean, it's curse after Deuteronomic curse, as far as Israel goes. Well, let's return now to the question then of since this hammer of God's judgment has been falling on Israel, why is it falling so slowly? What is it that is slowing the falling hammer of divine judgment? Well, the thing that's slowing it up is the prophetic activity that in both of these accounts, we have God's prophets coming and explaining what is happening and why, so that we, so that the people may understand what is happening and why. Now, it's interesting that the books of 1 and 2 Kings are not complete until the fall of both Israel and Judah. And you can imagine the people reading it in exile, reading it after the Assyrian invasion. And this is why what happened, happened. We're under the judgment of God. These are not just historical events, but we can see these historical events through the explanation of God's prophets and therefore discern God's purposes in these things. And this is all part of getting to know God better. Through this period of Israel's decline, God is making himself known. And so as we finish, let me draw our attention to two very clear places where this happens in chapter 20. Did you notice that twice it says, <clears throat> and you shall know? 
verse 13 and verse 28. What shall you know? And you shall know that I am the Lord. Now we need to drill down into this a little bit because this is simply, this is not simply God saying that I am God because the problem is not not believing in God. Even the Canaanites believed in God. They believed in Baal. This is God saying, I am the Lord. This is who I am. I'm Israel's God. I am the Lord. I'm the one who appeared to Moses, who gave the promises and the blessings and the curses. I'm the one who appeared to Abraham. I am the creator of all humanity. This one, he is the Lord. But did you notice that there are two particular aspects to dwell on? And Ben-Hadad becomes a foil for this revelation. The first is in 20 verse 13. 20 verse 13. And behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Here you have this mighty army of Ben-Hadad, and the question is, where does that leave the Lord's people? Where does that leave the Lord? Well, the hostility of humanity towards God is no match for God. In the words of Psalm 2, he laughs. It's a silly thing for a creature to rebel against his creator. And we're adding another layer, a thickness, to the idea that God's creation is no match for his creator, despite its rebellion. He will not be overcome. He will defeat his enemies. It's a silly thing to rebel against your creator. And this in turn is a basis for much confidence for us. That despite much hostility towards God, even if that's in terms of indifference, we have no fear as God's people. And we can proclaim with great confidence the gospel to invite people to hear it, to discuss with them and present the truth that God's king is now enthroned and that he calls on all people everywhere to repent for the forgiveness of their sins. And we have reason to be bold, to pray confidently for boldness to speak God's words. And such boldness will come, of course, as we see our situation the way God sees it. The second thing is in verse 28 of chapter 20. Verse 28, And a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, Because the Syrians have said, The Lord is a God of the hills, but he's not a God of the valleys, therefore I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Ben-Hadad thinks that whilst the Lord might be good at fighting on the hills, he'd be no good in the valleys. 
it's the idea of a parochial God. So you've local gods for different regions and different peoples. But what kind of Lord is the Lord? He's the Lord over everything. He's not just good on the hills, but good in the valleys. He's the uncreated creator. He's sovereign over all of his creation. He's not confined to activity among only this people or only among his people or where his people meet. He's not confined. He's actually the one who sustains the whole creation and gives it life and breadth and everything it needs. And so it's interesting that as Christians, we we might be tempted to think that the invitation of the gospel is an invitation to come into relationship with God. But actually, everyone is already in a relationship with God. As creatures, he gives each one of us life and breath and everything. The way the Bible puts it, we already have a relationship with him as creatures. But it's one of hostility. It's one of rebellion, of enmity. And it's utterly futile and silly. And in the end, will lead to death and judgment. See, the message of the gospel is not simply come into relationship with God, but be reconciled to him. Turn from being an enemy of God to being reconciled to him, to be forgiven by him, to be one of his people, adopted into his family, and given an inheritance an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, for it's kept in heaven for us. Let me pray. I'll open up to any questions or comments you might have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, rather than wish the history of Israel to be over uh, much more quickly, We thank you that um, your judgment is slowed precisely so that your prophets can come and explain the significance of these events, that we would know who you are and your purpose for the world. And Heavenly Father, as we approach um, getting ready for carols, Um, please might we be mindful of the kind of Lord that you are. That human opposition to you is no match to you, the almighty sovereign God. Therefore, we can have great boldness um, as we speak your words, knowing that you will not be thwarted, but that your purposes will come um, to being. And pray too that we would know that you are the Lord of all of your creation. And therefore, as the Bible puts it, that we are all post-fall enemies of you in need of reconciliation. And we thank you for your gospel and the means of Jesus' death on the cross that we can be reconciled to you, no longer be enemies but adopted um, and to receive an inheritance from you. 
Um, I pray, Father, these things will strengthen us and help us to have conviction and boldness and encouragement um, in this coming week. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, now it's time for any questions or comments. And I open the floor to you. Anybody want to say anything? Maki. Yeah, no, that's very, that's very helpful comment. Let me just repeat what you said um, for the recording. So at the end of chapter 21, there is Ahab's repentance. And the question is, is that related to the fact that of the slowness of the hammer of God's um, judgment falling? And it won't fall on him, but will fall on his sons. Yeah, no, I think it's exactly that. And I think that's it's helpful the way that you put it, that actually... Because I think you get to something like Ahab's repentance, and I think in the, I said the old days, but like early doors, I might be getting quite excited thinking, oh, Ahab's become a Christian. And like, you know, you can become a Christian too. You know, the focus is more on Ahab, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a story about Ahab and what happens to Ahab. But actually, Ahab's story or narrative is part of a much bigger narrative which is about the decline of Israel. And and Ahab, I mean, Ahab's described back in chapter 16 as, um, in verse 30, 16, and Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, he took for his wife Jezebel um, and served and worshipped the Baals. And so you think, hang on, Jeroboam was pretty bad, and it was his sin that has actually led to God saying um, uh, Israel is to be um, is under his under God's judgment. As a he, you've got Ahab, who's kind of even worse than that. And the question is, well, what is going to slow? What's going to slow things down? And so I think we are to understand his repentance as God restraining him. This is, the, this is the, the, the forbearance, the kindness, the mercy of God. So this isn't like really about Ahab. And like, oh, Ahab's he's got a good, good heart after all. It's, you know, we're not thinking that. But actually, how is, why, don't things, why aren't things as bad as they are? It's because actually God is, is restraining them. And you have to then ask the question, well, why? What's his purpose in this? And that's where we listen to the prophets as they explain the significance of what's happening, we would discern God's purposes in that. I think, yeah, it's spot on.
anything else? Nathan. Yep, so it's a kind of a comment question. It's interesting, Jezebel has quite a prominent theme. I mean, I don't say, I mean, I, I, you can probably imagine a parallel you might draw back with Adam and Eve, uh, whether that's a fair parallel, because you think, actually, Ahab, and what's he doing? You know, he's, he's not, he's, he's not, I mean, he's just, he wants a vineyard, he's, I mean, interestingly, he hasn't repented at the end of chapter 20 when he's made this alliance with Ben-Hadad, when he was told that actually Ben-Hadad was given to your hand because you were the instrument of God's judgment. He just wants a vineyard and um, for a vegetable garden. And basically, he just lies, goes, goes to lay down and Jezebel sorts all out for him. And then you kind of think, I mean... It kind of adds to Ahab's uh, lack of um, responsibility. I mean, I, I guess I make the parallel with like Genesis three in terms of um, Eve said. So God said to Adam, "You must not." Um, uh, Adam was given the word, "You're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat the, the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil." He was given that word. Eve then takes of the fruit and gives it to Adam to eat. Now Adam is the steward of that word. He, he, he should have said, no, we, we mustn't eat this because God has said. And as we've seen before, the kings are Adamic-like kings. You know, Solomon had those parallels with Adam. They've been given the law, the Deuteronomic law, the law about the inheritance that it mustn't dissolve, it must be kept. And actually, what does, Nate, what does Ahab do with that truth? He, he just goes to sleep, just ignores it, and allows um, his uh, Jezebel, his wife, to then go and do this evil thing to see, to see Naboth dead. So I kind of think it's it's just of a piece of, of how bad things are, that think people aren't functioning well. And particularly it goes back to, I think we're to see these things as this is, um, the things that they're doing is breaking the covenant that God has made with his people and therefore they experience his curse. Um, but Ahab, you're expecting him as a king, he, he should be he should be leading this from the front and actually he doesn't. But anyway. Cool. Time for more?
happy. Cool. In which case, we will. Nikki. Okay, so are you thinking? In verse 20, you say. Oh, of um, verse chapter 20, yeah, verse 13, it says, Behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Yes. I mean, it's interesting because Elijah comes back again, doesn't he, in 21-20. Yes, um, the, yep, yeah, we don't know, we don't know who um, who they are. It's interesting that, I mean, in 20, they are known, they are known as prophets, which is one of the reasons why um, you know, the prophet disguises himself so that he can trap Ahab in his own judgment in terms of he doesn't recognise that he's a prophet. So I guess these are, they're known as prophets. But yet, um, we don't know their, uh, don't know their names. But I think they are the key to these whole two chapters. Because without the prophets, you're just going to have just these historical events. You just think, well, this is, what is the point of this? But the prophets are, are basically explaining, explaining the events so that we, we actually know the significance. Cool. All right, we're going to sing again. It's kind of a carol, this song. Uh, come, come, Emmanuel. It's a little taste of things to come. And then we'll pray for our event coming up. So do stand and sing. <laughs>